I think that the government of California should know that us kids here are facing the rather scary possibility of dying out due to the effects of climate change. I mean, you know, climate change could be the beginning of something bigger. A mass extinction like the Precambrian extinction or the extinction of the dinosaurs. And um, do you think that it feels different for you than it feels for them to know that? Yes. I'm probably more scared because I am nine and they are adults. So I have a higher possibility of dying due to climate change in my lifetime. You just heard Zeke, who lives in California's central coast region. Scientists predict that climate change will lead to a slowly escalating set of problems over the coming decades, not a sudden cataclysm. But many of the young people I spoke with expressed concerns that government is not responding quickly enough. Both globally and nationally, this is undeniably true. We are not on target to keep global average temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. But what about at the state level? How are California's state and local governments addressing climate change? And how can young people get involved in that process? To answer that question, we're going to dive into the world of local government. It's definitely a little complicated, but the more you learn about how it works, the better you'll be able to influence the future in your local community, even before you can vote. Big things emerge from local government, like fracking bans and limits on plastic, building codes that conserve water and electricity. It's common for states, the federal government, and even governments in other countries to adopt or adapt ideas that started out in a city, so you can have a big impact working at the local level. In this episode, I'll help you understand how local government functions and what local officials are already doing to fight climate change. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. Government is a big topic, so this is the first of two episodes. We're going to begin here with the structure of local government so you can understand who does what. Then we'll look at what local governments are doing to address climate change. You may be surprised how long the list is, actually. In the next episode, you'll learn how you can get involved and influence those policies. First, some basic structure. As you may have already learned in class, at the federal level, there are three branches of government, and the U.S. Constitution outlines which things can be decided by Congress and which things are the responsibility of the president and the executive branch. It also says that any powers not given to the federal government are powers the states get to exercise. When there are disagreements about how to interpret those powers, a system of federal appellate courts, including the Supreme Court, gets to decide. Without going into detail, I'll just say U.S. history is filled with serious conflicts related to the question of whether the federal government or the states get to make certain decisions. Then, 
Each state also has a constitution, which, like the federal constitution, divides decision-making power, keeping certain powers at the state level and then letting local governments make other types of decisions. All of which is to say, when you're interested in making a change in your community, the first question to ask is, who makes decisions about this? I left my apartment and took a walk around my neighborhood looking for real-world examples of things that are related to climate change. And then when I returned, I asked an expert to help me make sense of what I saw. Okay, so can you introduce yourself? My name is Sky Woodruff. I'm a partner at a law firm where I practice municipal law, and I am the contract city attorney for three cities in the Bay Area. And who else are you? I'm the guy you married. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so um, you saw me, I just went down the street and I recorded some of the stuff that I saw to help understand which different government entities get to make decisions about different things. And I'm going to read you a list of stuff and I want you to tell me who gets to make decisions about it or who manages it. All right. So I walked out the front door and the first thing I did was I checked the mailbox. That is quasi-federal um, because the USPS um, is a federal creation, but it has its own status. And then I looked at our compost bin and I wheeled it up the driveway. Okay, for us, because we're technically in the city of Berkeley, that is a city service that they franchise to private companies. Okay, so city. And then as I was walking down the street, I passed the bus, the AC Transit bus. AC Transit is what's called a special district that uh, provides transit services countywide. So for Alameda County. In Alameda County. County. Okay. And as I walked down there, I passed a bunch of houses and I thought about our property tax. The property tax starts at the state level. Uh, it is collected by counties and then the county distributes the tax revenue to cities, counties, special districts, community college districts, school districts, and pretty much every form of local government that is entitled to a share of that property tax, including the state. Wow. Okay. So that's complicated. Yes. When I was down there, I went into the market that we go to often, and I interviewed Bo about plastic bags and the fact that we have to pay 10 cents when we get a bag if we don't bring our own. Hey, Bo. I'm doing a podcast about climate change, and I'm doing an episode about local government, and I just have one quick question about plastic bags. Plastic bags, okay. So you guys have to charge 10 cents if someone doesn't bring a bag, right? Correct. Um, we're required by law. Alameda County sent us um, notification, and um, they actually keep track and have us report how much we use as well. So there's a system that they have set up to uh, you know, keep that law in place. That is really complicated. So it is actually what's called a joint powers authority, which is a government agency that's created by other government agencies. Um, for Alameda County, it's called Stop Waste, and they're actually responsible for managing the Alameda County plastic bag program. Do you think the 10 cent works? People do give a second thought about you know using more plastic just because they have to shell out the 10 cents. Yeah, it's been a while, but we've noticed that they will plan ahead and, you know, make an effort to bring in their own bags just to avoid the 10 cents. And maybe it's clicking in that, you know, they are saving the environment. And so it's become more and more of a habit. But it took a little bit of, you know, time for that to kick in. 
And then um, when I was on my way home, I noticed that storm drain down the street that always gets backed up when it rains. Storm drain is city in most places or county. If you live in, in a certain area, sometimes it's a special district. But okay. for us, it's the city. And then the last one is the trees that are like between the um, like between the sidewalk and the street. That's really complicated. But in most cases, um, if the trees are a government responsibility, they will be the responsibility of the city or county. But in many places, the city or county will shift responsibility for those to the property owner that the tree is next to. So it's actually private. So if that's the case for us, like it would be our responsibility to water the trees in front of our house. And to trim them and to replace them if they become sick and need to be replaced. Okay. Um, that's all. Thank you. All right. Sure thing. California has three primary kinds of decision-making bodies below the state level. These are cities, counties, and what are called special districts. There are also tribal nations that are physically located within the state boundaries, but they're different. Even though they're surrounded by California territory, they have a special sovereign status. And as you just heard, within a single small area, just a city block, different government agencies may manage things that are located right next to each other, right on top of each other. And as you also heard, sometimes local governments get together to create a new agency, a joint powers authority, to carry out special tasks like managing a plastic bag policy, for example. Now, every kind of decision-making body is connected to climate change. Local government policies can reduce greenhouse gas emissions or can influence our day-to-day -day behavior. That always backed up storm drain down the street is going to shift from an annoyance to a genuine flood hazard as we start getting bigger storms. Sea level rise in combination with those bigger storms could result in serious problems for our sewer system. I also saw trees in my walk down the block and tree cover is a protection against high heat, but only if the trees survive drought years, obviously. The income taxes, property taxes, and sales taxes collected in my neighborhood are going to fund the changes we need to make locally and regionally. There are differences in local government structures, of course, but they also have important similarities. All the different kinds of government have elected officials. They all have public meetings where the community can listen and comment on policies. And they have staff to carry out those policies. If you learn how these fit together, you'll start to understand how decisions get made. Now, there's no guarantee that your local government is going to do what you want, but you will have a better chance of success if you understand the structure and some of the basic processes. I'm going to guess that when you think about local government in your hometown, the first people who come to mind are elected officials, like the mayor and the city council. So my name is Donna Colson. I'm a Burlingame City Councilwoman. I was elected in 2015 and just re-elected for another five-year term. Burlingame is located about 10 miles south of San Francisco. I asked Councilwoman Colson to explain what the City Council does. The City Council, at the highest level, we deal with sort of the budget and planning, how the city's going to operate, how we're going to finance and fund all the um, police departments, the fire departments. We also set policy around zoning and land use activities. We have gotten into even more um, 
minutiae around uh, things like sea level rise, climate action, helping provide clean energy into households. To put it briefly, elected officials have the power to initiate new policies, and they are also the ones who approve the budget. So, for example, if you live in a town with a ban on single-use plastics, like I do, your city council introduced and voted on that policy. Donna Colson also mentioned zoning and land use, which you already actually know about, even if it doesn't sound familiar. If you've ever been in a town that has, like, a downtown shopping area, plus maybe an area with a lot of big box stores somewhere else, and then some neighborhoods just for houses, you have experienced zoning. That's because each city has a general plan that divides the city into zones, where people are allowed to put different kinds of buildings, different kinds of functions. It's easy to get stuck in all the details of things that city governments do. Donna Colson offered a more holistic view of her role, and I think it's helpful. The sidewalks, the bike lanes, um, how pedestrians move through cities, how cars move through cities, and, and sort of how the organic nature of um, human interaction in a city, sort of every single day, city council has kind of influence on that. And, you know, the really the best thing for a resident is if they actually don't think about their city government. It's the days that they do start, start to think about us that means somehow I'm not quite doing my job. Keep this idea in mind. The best thing for a resident is when you don't think about your city government. When government doesn't work, it's annoying at best and deadly at worst. On the other hand, if government is working well, city services and infrastructure make your life better in such subtle, natural ways that they almost fade into the background. What would that look like in coming years in terms of climate change? It's a series of non-events. Sidewalks and streets would stay safe and passable, even in giant storms. When you need it, you'd have easy access to places to stay cool, even if you couldn't afford air conditioning. And people will experience these benefits equally, no matter where they live, no matter what they look like, no matter what language they speak. Making our state and local infrastructure both sustainable and just in that way is possible, but only if we make it a priority. This means making policies that move us in that direction and funding them. The city council sets policies and approves the budget, but you might be surprised to learn that in most California cities, someone else is running the day-to-day -day operations of the government and planning for the future. And it is not the mayor. My name is Karen Pincus, and I'm the city manager of the city of El Cerrito, California. El Cerrito is a small city of about 24,000 people on the other side of the bay from Burlingame. My job as city manager is essentially the CEO of the organization. Um, the city council, including the mayor and all the council members, are elected, and they hire me to run the operations of the city. So I oversee all of the city departments, police, fire, public works, recreation, community development, um, all of the functions of the city. The city council sets the policy, and I implement it. That's my job. The staff, who work in all those departments Karen mentioned, they are the people who make the council's policy ideas into day-to-day -day reality. 
we do a lot of the things that I think people take for granted when it comes to living in a city. So if you imagine your neighborhood and your house and where you live, you drive down the street. Uh, the city is responsible for making sure the streets are paved. If you have trees on your block, we um, use, we plant the street the street trees and we maintain those. Um, if you call 911, if you have an emergency, the police show up, the fire department shows up, an ambulance shows up. That's all a function of the city government. Obviously, if you own a house, you pay taxes and property taxes and certain taxes that cities charge help fund all of the things we do. All of those things that, again, that, that, that make your neighborhood work day to day, that's what we're responsible for. Let's review. The city council sets policy and votes on the budget, meaning they are the ultimate decision makers in terms of what gets funded. The staff carries out that policy and manages the city from day to day. So what about the mayor? In some places, especially larger cities, the mayor holds a separate elected office. In others, though, the mayor is just a rotating position held by a regular city council member. There are two kinds of cities in California, and the power of the mayor depends on which kind of city you're in. In a general law city, uh, the top administrator is the city manager, and pretty much all of the staff of the city answer to the city manager. The other is that in a general law city, the city manager is responsible for the preparation of the budget. In a charter city, who answers to whom and who is responsible for preparing the budget varies a great deal. In both, ultimately, the city council is responsible for approving the budget. Basically, in a general law city, the mayor does not have a lot of special decision-making powers, whereas in a charter city, they sometimes do. And I won't go into a lot of detail here. I will just say, if you are trying to make change in a charter city with a strong mayor, you will want to find out what kinds of powers the mayor has, especially regarding the budget. So that's the basic structure. Now, how do things actually get done? To understand, we're going to consider some examples related to climate change mitigation. What are cities doing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and how does that happen? In 2006, the state of California passed the Global Warming Solutions Act, much better known in the state as AB 32. And AB 32 led to a blueprint to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in California. It gets updated regularly, and based on the most recent update, California is aiming to reach carbon neutrality by 2045. Now, if the entire world set this goal and met it, scientists project that we would be able to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, which is what we want to do. In response to AB 32, a lot of cities, counties, school districts, and other local government agencies created what are called climate action plans. This means governments figured out how much CO2 they were emitting with their own activities, and some also calculated how much CO2 their residents were emitting, and then they came up with plans to reduce those emissions to meet benchmarks set by the state. I know this does not sound very exciting, but these bureaucratic plans at the local level, the state level, the national level, this is how we actually stop climate change. And in your town, a climate action plan can shift local government priorities and get them to take a much more active role in fighting climate change. 
One of the things that we did in El Cerrito is that we are a member of Marin Clean Energy, which is a community choice aggregate, which buys alternative energy um, that shows up instead of PG&E on your electric bill. We've done this uh, so that all residents of El Cerrito are able to belong to this alternative energy. It's essentially a company that sort of, they they overlay PG&E and it comes on your bill and you can choose from uh, the different levels of um, energy efficiency that you would like to pay for. So if you wanna go 100% energy efficient, um, alternative energy power, you can check that. It costs you a tad bit more, but it's still cheaper than PG&E. We as a city, for all of our utilities, we use a lot of power. Uh, city hall, Think of all the buildings we have and all the stuff we have to use. We are 100% deep green. So the city's energy is, we're buying that alternative energy already. Marine Clean Energy, or MCE, is a good example of local government doing something that became pretty big. Here's what happened. Step one. A Marin County supervisor proposed the idea of creating a joint powers authority that would act as an alternative energy company, supplying electricity to city residents in place of the local power company. A county supervisor is elected to serve on the board of supervisors, which is like a city council, but at the county level. Step two. The Board of Supervisors voted to create MCE and budgeted the money to set it up. So policy setting and funding. Throughout the process, members of the public could attend meetings and comment on the proposal. Step three. A staff member who worked for the Board of Supervisors was given the job of actually setting up MCE. And I should mention that I know about this story because Sky was one of the many people involved in that process. So, elected officials set policy, and then staff carried it out. Step four. The policy spread to other places, and this is why working at the local level can actually be quite powerful. City council members and staff working in cities outside Marin County heard about MCE and put it on the agenda for their city council meetings. They started the process for their cities to join MCE so that then their residents could also buy renewable power. And again, members of the public could go to the meetings and give their opinions. From a resident's perspective, though, it was not nearly this complicated. What happened is, one day you got a notice in the mail, letting you know that unless you opted out, your electricity was going to be coming from a new provider, and now you had the option to get electricity from renewable sources. After that, you just paid your electric bill to PG&E like normal, and behind the scenes, an increased share of your electricity was generated from solar or wind or other renewable methods, but you didn't really have to do anything. From the perspective of El Cerrito's city manager, Karen, MCE was both a step in the right direction and part of a larger vision. The thing about climate action, I think certainly for El Cerrito, and I'm sure this is true for many other cities, but certainly for us, is that it's not like a task that is sort of something we have to do. It, it sort of under, it's a value really that underlies everything we think of. A lot of what ends up being environmentally sound is efficient and saves money. Joining MCE helped El Cerrito meet their climate action plan goals. Employees in other cities told me the same thing, that agencies like MCE were central to them lowering their CO2 emissions. 
Councilwoman Donna Coulson told me another significant reduction in her city is the electrification of Caltrain, which travels through Burlingame and route from Silicon Valley to San Francisco. These kinds of government-led reductions in greenhouse gas emissions are crucial in mitigating climate change. In the case of MCE, residents were automatically switched over to the new power provider unless they intentionally opted out. But cities can also influence more personal day-to-day choices, and those can make a difference when they're added together. How does that happen? Well, first, think about the wide range of ways a person's behavior generates emissions. Here's Donna Colson again. So, for example, if you just walk to the store, and even if you have to buy something with packaging, but you walk to the store or you ride your bike to the store, just not getting in your car to go to the store is already saving a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, initially, this sounds like a private decision made by each person who's fortunate enough to own a car. After all, what does your city have to do with you choosing to get in your car or not? Well, a lot, actually. The city can build infrastructure that makes it easier and more appealing for you to make sustainable choices. Karen Pink has shared an example. We're trying to do what's called complete streets. So the idea is that it's not just for cars, it's for pedestrians, it's for bikes, it's for alternative vehicles, it's for buses, so that there's a variety of modes of transportation that someone can take to try to reduce, you know, all of our dependency on just driving a car. Complete streets make it easier for people who own cars to leave them home, and they are more equitable for the community as a whole. They reduce CO2 emissions, but they also make travel safer and better for people who are walking or riding bikes or taking the bus. Climate action plans, agencies like MCE, and Complete Streets are all examples of ways local governments use policies to mitigate climate change. By directing resources at vulnerable neighborhoods, climate action plans and complete streets can also promote climate justice. Now you know something about the structure of local government, and you have heard about some mitigation work that's being done, lowering greenhouse gas emissions. But what about adaptation? Even if we succeed in radically lowering greenhouse gas emissions, even if we reach carbon neutrality by 2050, we are going to feel the effects of climate change. Local government officials and employees I spoke with are already feeling the urgency of this situation. For example, as you probably know, changing weather patterns have led to increased fire danger across the state. And, to put it simply, our electrical grid is not built for our current climate conditions. I happened to interview Karen Pincus on a day when she and her staff were preparing El Cerrito for what was then a new climate-related event, a PG&E public safety power shutoff. So what they have decided to do this year is implement what they're calling public safety power shutoffs. And it's a precautionary measure to, if they see a weather event that is going to potentially be dangerous for fire, then they're going to preemptively shut off the power to those dangerous spots. Um, And the theory is if the power lines are off, then there's less issue with, say, a, a wind, you know, if it's really super windy and really super dry, which is what is supposed to happen tomorrow, that hopefully the power lines won't break or fall or whatever or, or spark any fires. That's why they're, they've come up with this as a, as a remedy to try to avoid what happened in Paradise and in Santa Rosa. We have learned, at least at this point, that a small part of El Cerrito will be affected for sure. Some schools look like they're going to be impacted. Some of our programs may be impacted. 
El Cerrito was trying to get as much information as possible to residents, but it wasn't easy. We knew as much as the public did. I mean, we we finally were able to get a hold of some people at PG&E who can confirm things for us. But, you know, I was trying to get on their website. Their website has not been working very well over the past few hours. So, I mean, everybody's sort of scrambling for this. So this is the first time that this has really happened in a huge scale for PG&E. So I think we're all going to learn how this goes. The PSPS was a new experience for the city, and it happened with almost no notice. But local governments are not starting from scratch when emergencies happen. All cities have and all counties have what's called an emergency operations plan, an EOP. There are, and this is this starts at the state level, goes down to the county level, and goes down to the city level. Each level of government has a plan for emergencies that the offices of emergency services sort of dictates. There's a plan in place for each department. So there are different sections of the city that um, end up getting mobilized. For example, the operations, the people on the ground, all of the cops and firefighters and public works people that are going to be out in the field doing stuff. At City Hall, there's a group of us that stay here at City Hall that sort of monitor the situation for everybody. Um, there's, you know, a group of people in what we call logistics that are trying to make sure we have enough supplies and that people are deployed in the right places. And if a full-scale emergency were to happen, um, our city council chambers and our city hall would would transform into what we call the er- Emergency Operations Center, or EOC. I've mentioned in other episodes that each community and each individual will experience the effects of climate change in unique ways. Planning for climate change at the government level includes considering different kinds of vulnerabilities and then doing very detailed planning to try to address them. We do have a list of um, uh, some people who have medical like say if their power goes out and they are on oxygen or they're on a some sort of medical device that requires electricity. Um, we do have some knowledge of that. We have a nursing home in town. We have next door our senior housing that we, right next door, we have a senior housing that's five stories, four stories. Um, if the elevator goes out and there's a medical call, we're going to have to carry that person down the stairs. The PSPS had very serious impacts for some of the population, whereas for other people it was frustrating but not immediately dangerous. Even with the best planning in the world, though, it's easy to imagine someone who needs help slipping through the cracks. And as we experience more extreme weather events, individuals and governments will experience layered effects. How many of these could you afford every year? That that absolutely is 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 a huge concern. And if you can get reimbursed from FEMA, if you can get reimbursed by the state, ideally that's that's best. But there's no way that this doesn't take a toll on our budget. It also takes a toll on our people. Imagine someone like, you know, Santa Rosa or in Paradise where these firefighters and these first responders, police and fire and and public works, had to see that and they had to see people get hurt or killed or people's lost their houses. That takes a huge toll on people personally. If this happened and then we had an earthquake and then we had a fire, oh yeah, no, that would, that could wipe out. Of course it would wipe out our budget. I mean, just think of all of the, you know, just over time alone of all of the first responders going out would be a huge amount of money, much less all of the supplies we would need in order to try to to keep to do what we could for our community. So there's yeah, I mean, that is the constant struggle of government anyway, is that we only have so much resources and whatever goes to one thing gets taken from something else. You know, it's not like I can just increase taxes or increase fees at a whim in order to pay for it. You know, that's there's a whole process behind that. So this this whole PG&E thing is directly related to climate change because, look, the climate change has created these weather conditions that are now impacting 
me at my desk. So climate change is impacting me at my desk, and it's expensive. Mitigating climate change is expensive. Adapting to withstand extreme weather events also costs a lot of tax money. But Karen's experience in El Cerrito gives us a taste of what we can expect if we don't lower greenhouse gas emissions and if we don't invest to adapt our infrastructure. The alternative to adaptation is constant crisis, one emergency after another, where we burn through both dollars and people's mental health, and where the highest price is paid by the most vulnerable people and communities. That's why we need to adapt. So what does adaptation look like? Sometimes it involves updating infrastructure, so we're better prepared for the emergencies caused by extreme weather events. And one piece of good news is that certain public institutions are already well-situated to help communities through these types of events. I'm Lana Lowen. I'm a public library administrator uh, for a library system in Northern California. I've been with libraries for about 20 years now, and I oversee um, a, a library system that has about 15 locations across our county. Libraries offer much more than just books. They hold classes for people of all ages in art, music, engineering, even fitness. Lana described them as a combination community center and social services center. Libraries serve lunch during the summer um, so that kids who are no longer in school can get a, uh, they can depend on the library for a regular meal that they may not be able to get at home. Uh, The libraries check out technology. So especially in our area, residents don't have access to internet. They can't afford it. Uh, so the library checks out a computer and a hotspot. Without the library and without the services, they would literally be d- disconnected. We also are home in the community to people experiencing homelessness. So we know in our society there are places that don't uh, accept homeless individuals. The library is a safe place for those individuals to go during the day and get access to technology. Um, again, resources like food uh, and just help. Um, to get them on a better path for where they are in life. So um, that's just a a short sample of some of the things that libraries offer, but we really do try to serve and help the whole person, um, no matter what age they are, because those resources are very scarce in our society now. Because libraries are serving whole communities, including very vulnerable populations, they play a special role during extreme weather events and other emergencies. Our first uh, fire, big fire in this area um, happened before I was employed with this library system. And during that time, um, all the libraries were shut down for a period of nine days. So um, staff were at home. Um, There was, you know, all of our facilities were closed to the public. And the library was not responsive to community um, for nine days during fire. So People couldn't use technology. They didn't have a place uh, to go that had air conditioning or just a place to be if they were evacuated. Um, Our library system learned a lot from that experience. And so during our next fire season, um, I had that knowledge in mind and I didn't want to do that to a community again. Um, You know, with our management team, we thought if there was a way to be open to the public Um, and be safe, you know, in serving our public and staff that we would do whatever we could to do that. Um, And what we saw was incredible. So we saw, I think on the first day, we had 1,200 people enter the library 
you know, staff was reporting, it was packed. Everyone was coming in to use the computer, just be connected to uh, their families or get information about what was happening in the county and what was the latest evacuation area. And it was funny, our Petaluma library was next to a, um, a big evacuation center. Uh, those that were in the evacuation center didn't realize because they were out of the area, they didn't realize that there was a library right there. And it's a huge library. Um, so our staff regularly did trips to the evacuation center and we um, have a lot of staff at that branch who speak Spanish. So we're able to connect with the residents who didn't speak English very well and let them know that there are resources at the library and people who could speak their language and get them information about emergency services or any services they needed during that time. So it was a, the library became a supplemental service. We also handed out books uh, to children. I mean, the library was a place that most parents could enter and, you know, we had movies playing for kids and it was just a place where people could sit for a moment and take a breath uh, in all the craziness that was happening and all the fear that was happening about, you know, what were homes going to be like? When could people return home? What were the resources? I mean, how do you keep your family safe when you have to keep moving south to get out of the path of the fire? A lot of people trust library staff, which makes perfect sense when you think about the role libraries play in a lot of communities. This is why so many people turned up there during the fire evacuation. Based on her experiences with the multiple fires and floods in her region, Lana is trying to adapt libraries so they can keep functioning during extreme weather events. But what would you change about library buildings to make them more useful to communities as we move forward with climate change, with more fires and more heat? Every building needs a generator. So most library buildings are... Um, they were built a long time ago, <laughs> and uh, the budgets don't support continued, you know, um, maintenance of the buildings or, you know, just to modernize the buildings. So one of the things that we're doing in our area, and this is through, you know, partnership with PG&E, is that we are reconfiguring our electrical panels um, through that partnership with them to ensure that we have power you know, if we're able to open the building during fire season or a public safety power shut off. So what you're doing is making it so that libraries can very consciously be spaces for people to charge their devices, have access to power. It sounds like also if you have power, that means you have the ability to have a cool space because, of course, fire season comes along with heat often. Yeah. So one example is our Rincon Valley Library happens to be on a particular grid for PG&E and that power was shut off for two to three weeks um, during last public safety power shutoff season and fire season. And it also happens to have a ton of seniors uh, who low income, don't have access to air conditioning, who are extremely vulnerable populations. So that is one change we're making with our building for this fire season, that library will be powered and have a generator uh, so that we can ensure service. Some of the libraries in Lana's district are getting electrical upgrades. PG&E designated them as community resource centers. But the big picture is that libraries barely have the money to maintain their current buildings and just keep the doors open. Once again, the issue has two parts, planning for adaptation and then funding adaptation projects. We've had to respond to COVID. We are going to have to respond to climate change, but let's Let's do it with smart planning again, rather than just 
putting a Band-Aid over what happens because of climate change. Upgrading libraries expands our emergency response options. But what Lana describes is just a beginning point. In an ideal future, libraries, schools, other important community buildings, even whole sections of neighborhoods, will run on resilient microgrids powered by renewable energy. Lana and her colleagues are clearly doing incredible work, but no matter how efficient or welcoming or helpful libraries are, it's still traumatizing if you have to evacuate your home because of a fire or heat or even an extended power outage. To have a good future, we also need adaptations that help absorb the effects of climate change before they turn into emergencies. I learned more about that from a city staff member in a town about 150 miles to the east of Lana's library district in the western foothills of the Sierras. My name is Bjorn Jones, and I am the assistant city engineer for the city of Grass Valley. Bjorn's department oversees projects on everything from the sewer system and water system to streets, sidewalks, parks, public buildings, even traffic lights. And just as Lana described with library buildings, Aging infrastructure is one of the challenges Grass Valley faces in terms of climate change readiness. Yeah, I mean, we're no different, if not worse, up here with the aging infrastructure. Um, a lot of it is 80, 100 years old um, in places, and uh, especially on sewer and drainage side, it is just a really aging infrastructure that takes a lot of maintenance and continual upkeep to just yeah, keep it running. <laughs> because of the location in the Sierra foothills, addressing the increasing wildfire problem is top of mind for Grass Valley. But California is also predicted to see bigger winter storms with more of the precipitation falling as rain in the Sierras rather than snow. For Bjorn's department, this means figuring out how to adapt to more intense floods. The so-called 100-year flood is not exactly every hundred years now, it's <laughs> it's becoming more regular. Um, and so how do we adapt to that and um, reset the norm of what our system can handle? Adaptation often involves a combination of looking forward using climate projections, but then also looking backward and undoing environmental damage. We did have a grant project that uh, was very effective in reestablishing a historic wetland area. We uh, were able to success successfully divert the creek into this old wetland, restore native vegetation and plantings. And um, I think it's a really great model to try to replicate as far as um, we can restore some of the natural creek flows. And we don't just have to think I guess, on an engineering mindset of putting it in a pipe and just getting it out of uh, the way as fast as you can. This project addresses both flooding and fire danger. Basically, it turns out that healthy ecosystems with native California plants are much better able to absorb the effects of climate change than a lot of our built environments. They can help reduce flooding, filter water, recharge underground aquifers, and reduce fire danger. Variations on this kind of flood control are happening all over the state in both urban and rural areas, although you might not notice them if you don't know what to look for. Other types of adaptation use new technologies to try to mimic specific aspects of the natural ecology. We did a whole block of permeable concrete, and you can go out there and dump a bucket of water in the middle of the street, and it just disappears. And so you have a lot less runoff being 
concentrated in the gutter pan and then set into a pipe. Permeable concrete is an attempt to maintain roads and sidewalks while reducing the serious flooding caused by runoff from concrete and asphalt surfaces. Now, this small project demonstrated how roads in a flood-prone area could be improved if we choose to prioritize upgrading our infrastructure. Thinking back to what Donna Colson said earlier in the show, these anti-flooding projects are successful precisely because by preventing a flood in the first place, they mean you don't have to think about your local government. Now, to the West, in cities along the coast, the local government response to sea level rise combines all of what you've heard about so far. Policymaking, funding decisions, differences in climate vulnerability, and a variety of different adaptation techniques. A lot of costly infrastructure sits in vulnerable coastal areas. Sewage treatment plants, highways, railroads, power plants. But that isn't all. Donna explained how this could play out in Burlingame. Burlingame um, has a bayfront. Um, 40% of the city's budget is derived from economic activity that is within 10 feet of the bay. We have a um, transit occupancy tax that's derived from hotels, and the vast majority of our hotels are right on the bayfront. They're all in a flood zone. Let me translate here, because transit occupancy tax probably isn't something you hear a lot. Burlingame is just south of the very busy San Francisco airport, so it has a lot of hotels used by travelers who are flying in and out of the area. The city collects a tax on the price of those hotel rooms, kind of like a sales tax, and that tax money from those hotels adds up to be 40% of all the tax money collected by the city each year. And those hotels are very close to current sea level. So with um, looking at our flood maps in 10 years to 50 years, most of those hotels would be flooded out and inaccessible, in which case then they obviously couldn't operate as businesses, so we would lose 40% of our city revenue. So for a city like ours, it's incredibly impactful and meaningful right down to the dollars that it takes to operate the city. Um, we also have a major highway that comes through our town that would flood, um, and then we have um, you know, vulnerable assets like our sewage and sanitation is within 15 feet of the bay. You can imagine you wouldn't want that to flood as well. What is Burlingame looking at in terms of addressing that? We started off by having a big conversation about five years ago at the sort of county and federal level. And we created the first ever in the United States of America Flood and Sea Level Rise Resiliency District. We know it as Fizzler. And we're having these um, community conversations around sea level rise. We're bringing in businesses, vendors, people, and having um, expert consultants come in, tactical plans built and dividing the city and the Bayshore into five separate reaches and coming up with actually very specific solutions for every single part of the bay and then connecting them to our nearby towns. And those would include everything from wetlands restoration and creating new beaches and beautiful parks so we can have more of a natural sort of environment to sea level walls and berms um, and uh, repairing as well as rebuilding. And then on the final context of that, we have to figure out how to pay for all this. Infrastructure like the sewage treatment plant is endangered by sea level rise. But the city's tax base is also endangered. 
You heard city manager Karen Pincus talk about the price tag El Cerrito has to pay each time it responds to a crisis. This example from Burlingame, though, goes one step further. It's not just that climate change is expensive or adaptation to climate change is expensive. It's that if the region doesn't adapt to sea level rise, it stands to actually lose a lot of its tax revenue. This means it will have even less money to respond to future crises. And every dollar that goes to a future crisis is a dollar that comes out of, for example, roads or parks or youth programs. Donna is hoping that Bay Area governments can work together to adapt infrastructure. And she wants to do this without borrowing huge sums of money, which would need to be paid back by future adults, today's kids. The discussions around this planning involve community input, including input from young people. And, like I said before, more on that and similar opportunities in the next episode. Burlingame is on the San Francisco Bay, not the ocean. This protects it from some of the wave-related effects of sea level rise. About 60 miles to the south, Santa Cruz sits directly on the Pacific coast at the northern end of the Monterey Bay. And like many other cities, Santa Cruz is working on climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, and thinking about climate justice. I spoke to the person whose job is to manage this work. My name is Dr. Tiffany Wise-West, and I am the Sustainability and Climate Action Manager for the city of Santa Cruz, California. Tiffany told me that the two biggest things Santa Cruz has done to lower greenhouse gas emissions are, first, the creation of a community choice energy program like MCE, which you learned about earlier in the show. And second, the city has banned the use of natural gas in new construction. So new buildings will be fully electrified, not having natural gas for heat or for stoves or other appliances. If you're a young person in Santa Cruz, or really a person of any age, you may be unaware of these policies to reduce emissions. But if you look at the infrastructure around you, you can see evidence that Santa Cruz is working on both mitigation and adaptation. So you may see in, say, a parking lot, a solar canopy. That might be something that we developed for our municipal parking lots. You also might see something like a seawall or a living shoreline like a vegetated dune or something like that that helps us to deal with the impacts of climate change. In in those two examples, we're talking about sea level rise and increased storm flooding. These kinds of projects are happening all over the state. And as Tiffany reminded me, that is no accident. The other thing that really helps us are the state regulatory drivers. You know, when the state comes out with a goal on electric vehicle adoption or on uh, renewable energy penetration or carbon neutrality by 2045, let's say, that's something that we as a jurisdiction will usually default to. And so that will cause us to re-strategize as to, you know, how can we achieve that target? And that all gets codified in the Climate Action Plan, which our Climate Action Plan sunsets this year. And so we are getting ready to embark upon a new Climate Action Plan process. In other words, when the state adopts large-scale emissions goals, many local governments enact new policies to meet the goals. You've heard several references now to climate action plans. Santa Cruz was one of the first cities in the state to go one step further. In 2012, they adopted a climate adaptation plan and then updated it in 2018. 
So at the same time that they've been working to lessen the intensity of climate change mitigation, they've also been looking at where their community is most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And they've been making plans to respond or to adapt. And I'm also really proud of our social vulnerability to climate change assessment, where we built a social vulnerability score for each census block group, which is essentially a neighborhood scale. And we rank them relative to one another. And then we overlaid our climate hazard zones so we could see where areas of high social vulnerability intersected with where we were expecting climate hazards. And from that, we can tailor strategies better to better serve these vulnerable folks. And I'll give you an example. Down in our Beach Flats area, it's a really dynamic Latinx community. Um, and they are our frontline community. But we know that anything that goes out with respect to flooding, whether it's a reverse 911 alert or it's flood insurance information, it has to go out in both Spanish and English, right? That's super simple. I'll give you another example. Um, over in our Seabright neighborhood, it's next to an open space, which is considered a high wildfire potential. Well, we know that there's high social vulnerability there due to a large concentration of old folks' homes. And we know that those folks have mobility issues. So when we do our routing for our emergency responders in the case of a fire or some other disaster event, we know that they need to get to those people first because they have mobility issues. So those are just a couple examples of how we've used that social vulnerability work. This work involves careful research and responsive planning rather than infrastructure improvements. But like the library upgrades you heard about earlier, it improves the city's ability to respond to emergencies, and it does it in a way that prioritizes the most vulnerable people in the community. We also talked about protecting the high-cost infrastructure along the coast in Santa Cruz from the effects of sea level rise. Luckily, research suggests that their $150 million wastewater treatment facility is not projected to be inundated by sea level rise. But just to be safe, the city has actually taken precautions. You know, our public works department has done things like waterproofing all of the subsurface tankage and pipe galleries, building curb walls to prevent migration of um, groundwater and so forth. Though the wastewater treatment facility appears to be safe for the next several decades, there are potential concerns on the horizon. One of these has to do with drinking water. We actually have fresh water intakes, um, you know, not too far from our river mouth. And so that's a, another very pressing uh, infrastructure, critical service kind of uh, thing that we have our eye on. Other coastal infrastructure in the city and many beaches are definitely projected to be damaged by sea level rise. But they aren't just waiting for crisis to strike. Santa Cruz is already organizing community conversations to get residents' input as the city works to plan for the future. This means having discussions about something called managed retreat, which means intentionally moving infrastructure inland from the coast. Now, whether you call it managed retreat or something more neutral like planned relocation, it's a controversial topic. But it is also a necessary discussion for coastal towns. We have not shied away from that conversation in our community, and we actually have identified through these current sea level rise projects, managed retreat from the public engagement we've had so far is a preferred long-term strategy. 
So in other words, as sea levels rise, some Santa Cruz community members say they are willing to replace a recreational beach with sand dunes planted with native vegetation, for example. Or they'd rather give up a beachfront parking lot than spend the money to try to armor that stretch of coastline. We still have time to plan ways to minimize the impact of sea level rise in many places, but it's still a hard conversation. Everybody wants different things for how we manage our coastline. But we have this opportunity to come together. Not everyone's going to get what they want. But if we don't come together and determine what our vision is for a resilient future coastline, we will be lost. We will not have a plan and we will not have a coastline that we can continue to enjoy in terms of recreation and so forth. I am assuming that you've picked up by now that a lot of government involves assessing risks and planning for the future. You've heard about people planning to better manage our response to fires, to high heat, to weather-related power outages, to flooding, and to sea level rise. All of it involves long-range decision-making and collaboration. We're going to end this episode in Manhattan Beach, a coastal city right next to Los Angeles. My name is Dana Murray, and I'm the Environmental Sustainability Manager for the city of Manhattan Beach. Dana first worked as a marine scientist, and in that role, she often met with decision makers to talk with them about policy. Now she's using her knowledge to work on the other side, creating the policies. Like Santa Cruz, Manhattan Beach was assessing the city's climate-related vulnerabilities, and the list will probably sound familiar to you by now. We're a beach community, so things like sea level rise, storm surge, um, coastal flooding, um, but also high heat events, um, drought um, flooding or high precipitation events. Inland, just a few miles from where we met, the city of Los Angeles is doing innovative work on heat-related adaptations, like increasing tree cover and experimenting with something called cool streets. I've included links about both of these things on the Future Imperfect webpage if you want to see them. But I want to come back to sea level rise here, because the choices we can make in response to sea level rise really illustrate the different paths we can take with any type of adaptation. On one end, you have hardened infrastructure options, and that would be like a hardened seawall. So you have rocky riprap, huge boulders that they've mined often at Catalina Island to kind of build this rocky riprap wall, or it can be straight up concrete seawalls. Um, so that's on one end. There's pros and cons to that. Um, you'll often create you know, a hardened structure that protects infrastructure inland behind it. But you often will have um, erosion and scouring of sand in front of that seawall, so you might lose your beach in front of it. You might protect, it might better protect what's behind it, but you might lose that beach. And then you kind of have a spectrum of other solutions. So there can be things like um, putting additional sand on beaches, which is called beach nourishment. So it can create longer, wider beaches. Manhattan Beach has a wide, sandy coastline. Plus, many areas of town are constructed on top of sand dunes. And it turns out, as you heard, this is a useful resource in the city's response to sea level rise. On the other end of the spectrum are eco-adaptations. These options harness the power of natural systems to protect our built environments. So for areas that where you've lost your coastal dunes, or you never had sand dunes, one really um, solution that's supported by science and environmentalists is usually to restore coastal sand dunes, because not only does it create kind of a buffer to sea level rise and high tides and storm surges, but it also creates what's called a living shoreline. Another really important one in California is wetlands restoration. 
because our coastal wetlands act kind of like the lungs. And so they're a natural way to absorb some of that coastal flooding. So if you have areas where wetlands have been restored, when we have more flooding, the wetlands can kind of absorb it rather than it going into all of our neighborhoods. The challenge is that a lot of our coastal wetlands, especially in Southern California, have been filled in with set with sediment um, and have development on them. And so there's a real strong push in, in California to try to restore some of these coastal wetlands for multiple reasons. And one of them is to combat um, climate change. Governments are already working on projects using all these options along many parts of the coast. But for geographic reasons, they're working on different timescales. As you heard earlier, some local governments are trying to plan for adaptations and at the same time having to manage current crises related to fires, high heat events, floods. Because of coastal geography, the same thing is true when it comes to sea level rise. Our first initial studies, it doesn't look like there's going to be much um, private houses or infrastructure that will get flooded by the coast. And also that's why we're going to be doing beach dune restoration to give even more time and buffer from that. But there are other communities in California which coastal houses are getting flooded now. You look at Imperial Beach down in um, far south San Diego County, and you have entire neighborhoods and blocks that get flooded every winter now during king high, t- king high tides and storm surges. That's before they have a, a lot of the big influence from sea level rise yet. Local government winning against climate change will look the opposite of every heroic action movie you have ever seen. Instead of a single charismatic figure who saves the day, you have hundreds of people, elected officials, staff, community members, all debating and planning and working behind the scenes for years on end. Rather than a single giant victory, you have dozens of small successes, and each one really is the absence of a problem that could have been. Streets that don't flood during big storms. High tides you can just enjoy or ignore that don't threaten anything. Whole neighborhoods that don't really overheat, and on the rare occasion that they do, community cooling centers where people can spend hot days together, relaxing with books and movies. It may seem counterintuitive, but victory is a scene where not much happens. A consistent theme among the young people who I interviewed for this project was a sense that they are on their own in this fight for their future. And there is a crisis, that's definitely true. But young people aren't alone. There are people in local governments all over California who go to work every day and chip away at this massive problem. And a lot of them have been doing it for their whole careers. What does it feel like to be in your role? Well, first of all, the news that's been coming out over the past few years on climate change and the effects and what we're facing and how on target or not on target a lot of local government or states are, it, it, it can be heavy. It's, it's hard to take in. And so for me, it solidified like the career decisions I made that I'm going to fight till my last breath to try to make that Sorry. <laughs> we're both tearing up. <laughs> Um, to try to make that, you know, there's a world for, for humans to live on and for animals and for nature. 
and that we learn from indigenous groups and use traditional um, environmental knowledge that's coming from them to try to make the world that we know we want, some of the world we have now, and try to make this livable for humans in the future. So I got on, in my personal time, I got on these climate strikes with my daughters. We did the LA climate strike actually, um, you know, a week and a half ago with Greta. Greta was out there, we looked over and she was just right over there next to us. And my daughter gets it, a lot of the youth gets it. And don't stop fighting, you know what we need to do. You run for local office, you influence your local decision makers' decisions. And as humanity, we just make it a priority. We know what we need to do, and it's not too late to do it. So where do you fit in this process? When and how can you have the biggest impact on local decisions? In the next episode, we'll look at participation in local government, both from the perspective of people in government and also through the eyes of young activists. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about climate action plans, climate adaptation plans, and generally all things government, check out the Future Imperfect resources at calglobaled.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.